If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to be reading. uh, We're approaching the final stretch of our journey here in Ephesians. Uh, If you're new, we started the book of Ephesians in January of this year, and we are now, after this passage today, going into our final sub-series that's going to take us all the way into the Advent, and believe it or not, we're going to be heading into the holidays Um, And so we spent a whole year here on this book. Now, Ephesians chapter 6, I'm going to read from verses 5 to 9. It's also printed in your bulletins. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And this is God's word. Now, I'm going to spend some time giving you some background here. Uh, we said in Ephesians chapter 4 to 6, the latter half of Ephesians, it's a very practical, practical part of the book. And it says this. It says that, number one, when you put off the old self and put on the new self, a lot of things happen. You stop lying, and instead you start telling the truth. You don't let the sun go down on your anger, and instead you reconcile, you forgive. You stop stealing, and instead, you become useful to the body. You stop unwholesome talk like gossip, and instead, you start to encourage other people. You get rid of malice, and instead, you become kind and compassionate. There's no sexual immorality. There's no impurity. There's no greed. There's no obscenity. There's no foolish talk. And then he says, because you are God's children, live wisely. Make the most of every opportunity. Be filled with the Spirit. And if you are filled with the Spirit, there's a gratitude in your heart that takes a hold of you. And you start to sing and give thanks to the Lord. It changes what you think. It changes what you say. And you're going to start to submit then to one another. And we went through this whole series of wives submitting to their husbands, husbands loving their wives. We went into children and their parents, fathers and their children. Ephesians chapters 5 to 6 is what we call the household code. A lot of ancient scholars, they had their own version of what should take place in the household. And so Paul's no different. He's writing one and sharing that here. And you see this throughout many different books in the Bible. Paul writes to the Colossians. He writes here in the, to the Ephesians. Now, you've got to remember, the reason why he writes this is because when Paul wrote this letter, people were gathering in their homes on Sunday to have worship. People were gathering in their homes on the Sabbath to have worship. And so, today, he's addressing wives and their husbands. He's addressing children and their parents. He's addressing slaves and their masters because it all took place. They all lived in one house together. Households back then were very, very large in ancient times. And so, we have here the culmination of Paul's household code. Now, before we get into this text, the reason why I have to give you a little bit of a background is because a lot of people throughout history, 
have sinfully used this passage to justify slavery in America. And so, you know, you read passages like this, and it kind of makes you bristle a little bit. And so we've got to get past that. I need to give you a little bit of context. Paul, through this letter, is not trying to comment on ancient institutions. Notice, he doesn't say wives, husbands. You know, the societal view that we have in our day, it's bad, it's sinful, it's wrong, even though it was. He doesn't say that explicitly here. He doesn't say children, parents, the way we treat our children in our time is wrong, it's sinful, even though it was. He doesn't comment on that. And so, in, in essence, what he does say is wives, children, slaves, this is how you live in it. Now, of course, he's implying at the least that this is sinful. He's implying at the least. And there's plenty of places in the Bible, even passages that Paul has written in the Bible that talks against slavery, slavery as a bad institution. And historically, Christians rose up against slavery over time in Europe and America as a result. Of course, not all Christians did that. And they didn't do it quickly enough. And we have to repent of those things. We had and we had. But as an institution, the Bible speaks against it. The Bible speaks against slavery. But Paul here, he doesn't comment. This is not a sermon. He doesn't comment about the institution of slavery in the ancient times itself. Rather, he's teaching us, and he teaches us broad lessons. He's teaching us how to live in these institutions. And it's especially because the concept of slavery in those ancient times is very different, very different from the institution that we had learned about here It's very, very different than the institution that we understand it to be today. Number one, it wasn't based on race. Number two, it wasn't systematic. It didn't take place through kidnapping and capturing people. It it didn't rely on hunting people down. Number three, usually you became a slave as a casualty of war. Usually one country conquered an entire country, and as part of ownership of that country, they were bringing in people into their own country. And you, so you were a casualty of war, and it, it was, so far, as a result, a temporary institution for you. If you were a slave, you bought your way out, and that process took, on the average, around a decade, a decade and a half. And so, very, very different. And lastly, these slaves actually had rights. They owned property. They had an education. They actually had other slaves. Eventually, Christians rose up in Europe They rose up in North America because slavery became much more harsh, became much more focused. People hunted people down to make them slaves. And if you really pay attention to what Paul is saying here, he was setting up any form of slavery to come to an end. Because the text here challenges and changes how one group responds to the other. Slaves to their master, master to their slaves. Completely changes the way they relate to one another. And because of that, even though it's implied as sinful, Paul was really essentially doing away with the entire institution altogether. And he did. He He was successful in doing so. So, we need to read this text through the eyes of the original readers, Remember, in a church, you had slaves and masters sitting in them. 
in those ancient times. And so we need to read it through their eyes to get a sense of the real message of what Paul's saying. Now, some of you are saying, well, if you have to read it through their eyes, the eyes of the first century slaves and masters, what does this have to do with me? And the answer is, it has everything to do with you because it was relevant to first century slaves. Because Paul's saying, our work today, the work that we are involved in today, it's binding. The work that you're involved in today, whether you're in school, whether you're in the professional sector, whether you're white collar or blue collar, it doesn't matter. The work, the work that you're doing is binding and it's hard. And it can be a grind and it's humiliating at times and it's always frustrating. And so as a result, it's always brutal. It's very brutal. It can lead you to anxiety. It can lead you to depression. It can lead you to despair, either because you have too much or because you don't have one. It could lead to tremendous amounts of anger, tremendous amounts of pressure, and yet you still don't have enough for yourself, and so it's going to lead you to feel insignificant and meaningless. And so what Paul does is, in spite of the grind, in spite of the humiliation, in spite of the frustration and the anxiety and the pressure, the labor, now remember, work is like slavery in a sense, right? Because of that, it's cursed. But the gospel gave the church something that made our work then bearable. And if it made it bearable for them back then, slaves, it could so much make our work bearable and even sustainable and even satisfying today. In other words, if it applies to a first century slave, if it applies to a first century master, it can apply to you who work. It could apply to you who manage other people who work. And the ancient churches, they're filled. Ancient churches were filled with slaves. They were filled with orphan children. They were filled with women. Why? They just flocked to the church. Why? What did the gospel give them to deal with work? It's four things that we're going to cover today. Four things. Work, it gives us dignity. The gospel gives us dignity. The gospel gives us a calling. The gospel shows us the curse. And the gospel renews us in it. Dignity, calling, curse, renewal. Now, I could say a lot more. Guys, I, I was tempted to take this and turn it into a whole series by itself. You know why? Because if you look at every one of our staff members here, they work. They're bivocational ministers. Most of us for years when we came to Metro didn't take a single paycheck. And the paycheck that they receive today, right, is, is you could hardly call it a paycheck. They're bivocational ministers. And so they have a lot that they could say about faith and work. That's what we're going to go into today. First, we're going to talk about dignity. Verse 7, Paul says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. The actual Greek, it kind of says it like this. I'm going to kind of uh, re-manipulate the phrase. He says, serve wholeheartedly because when you're serving, you are serving the Lord. In other words, all work is God's calling to you. All the work that you do is a calling from God. Paul's sharing his version of the household code. It's for everybody in the house. It applied to everyone. But here's the thing. Every other ancient scholar that ever provided a household code, if you see the ancient scholars, people like Aristotle, you know, people who lived through their day and wrote their own version of a code, they never addressed slaves. They only addressed the masters of the slave. 
But Paul, what does he do? He addresses women first. He ad- women had no status in society back then. He addresses children first. Why? Because children were considered low, had no status in society. He addresses slaves first. And so what he's saying here is what? The marginalized in society in Paul's day, people address us first. The reason is because what he's saying is all of us, all people are image bearers of God. You have equal dignity in the Lord. Verse 9, look what he says to, uh, to masters. Treat yourselves and the, treat your slaves in the same way. The same way as what? Verse 5, what does he say to the slaves? Obey your masters with respect and fear. He's saying, masters, I want you to listen to your slaves and treat them with respect and fear. And then he goes even further, verse 9, do not threaten them. That's an amazing thing because think about what the world says, especially in those ancient times. The world says today, as well as ancient times, all society is what? All society, all politics, you see it a lot today, right, is what, about what? Power. Trying to upend the other. You see it. You get on Facebook, and you scroll through your news feed and count in one hour how many news feeds you see, posts about one side or the other on the political realm. One side is angry at the other. The other side is angry at the one side, right? And there's constant back and forth, especially if you looked at it in the last week, right? The ancient society says and concludes that all society is about power. Ancient scholars say life is all a power play. You have people like Aristotle and Hegel, Karl Marx, who say that life, systems are about power. Hegel and Marx, if anything, said that it's a struggle between the thesis and the antithesis, always trying to upend the other. All of life is about power. All of life is about superiority. If you think about personal dynamics and relationships here in this congregation, It's all about, a lot of times, for many people, it's about power. It's about status. One group trying to upend the other. One person trying to upend. That's why we have gossip. And Paul, he takes all of this. He says, if you put on and put off, if you put off sin and put on Christ, you will stop to do those things. And in actuality, your heart, because you're in union with Christ, now you're going to encourage people instead of gossip them. You're going to reconcile with them instead of being angry at them. You're going to speak wholesome language, not with unwholesome language. Slaves, you're going to actually respect your masters. Masters, you're going to actually respect your slaves because we're all image bearers of God. And and so the world says... No, it's all about power. That's how you're supposed to treat people beneath you. You're supposed to step on them in any way possible. But Paul says, no. If you're a Christian, you're never going to threaten anybody. Even if it's your right, even if they are employed by you and it's your paycheck, you're paying the paycheck out, you have no right. The gospel just takes that right away from you. You never make it about power. Why? And Paul says something remarkable. He says, because you are a slave too. You are a slave, and you will never be free from sin. You are a slave to a greater power, and you can never be free from that power. You can buy your way out of this slavery, he says, but you will never be able to buy your way. You will never be able to work your way out of this. And yet God brought you up and out. And so the Lord is both master over you and your slave. The gospel equalizes 
brings a tremendous balance in the dignity of all people. Paul says, if you're a slave, you have a master. But your master also has a master. And that master plays no favorites. The text literally says, you are all equals. That's basically what he's saying. That's, wow. It's remarkable in those ancient times. People just flocked to the church. If we treated one another here in this congregation as equals, that is an entire community that is transformed by the gospel. One person treating another person as an equal, it might inspire a few. But imagine an entire community. Imagine an entire kingdom of God treating one another as equals. No matter status, no matter your education, no matter what line of work you're in. That's remarkable. It changes and transforms the community around. You get that? The gospel equalizes the dignity of all people. And this is why even the mildest forms of slavery, Paul's really setting it up to tumble down, to die. Paul says, serve wholeheartedly. Remember, for a servant in a household, these jobs were menial. These jobs were a grind. They were incredibly humiliating at times. That's us. That's you, right, every day. You're doing the work. All of us here have a boss. Most of us here have a boss, right? And somebody said, well, I run my own business. Well, then your wife's your boss. I don't know, right? You know, you're doing the, everyone here is doing the work that their boss should be doing, but their boss doesn't want to do because it's menial, so they're making you do it. That's essentially what it is. And Paul says, God sees. God knows. Treat that work as a calling. It's not just ministers who are called. Martin Luther actually says he believes in the priesthood of all believers. Because in those ancient times, in the, in the times, well, I guess you can't say it's ancient times, but during Martin Luther's day, you believe that only ministers were called. You believe that only, only priests were called. Martin Luther says, well, actually, everyone who does any type of work, it's meaningful. Everyone is called. That restores dignity here to anyone who is doing anything. If you're working, there's a dignity in your work. Treat it as a calling. And that leads us to the second point, calling. Verse 6, slaves, obey your masters. Obey your earthly masters. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, right? Because really what he's saying is God sees, right? But like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Paul says, be respectful. Do a good job for your master. But don't ever think that he's your real master, because he's only your earthly master. Why is that important? Think about this. In the office, people are so into their careers, right? If you, if you work in an office, people are so into their careers. It's life or death for people who are in the office. And so what do they do? They're overworking. They're constantly overworking. And they're dealing with anxiety because there's a tremendous amount of pressure. And everyone's trying to step over each other to get ahead, to get on top of one another. If you're in the factory, if you're in a plant, in the blue-collar world, it's very, very different. You know, now, I work in an office, and I tell you the story. Um, the, the, these men came into my office because uh, I guess the company felt like they had to replace our desks. And so uh, we were told to clear out our desks, you know, except for the monitor and, you know, whatever you need to do your work. So we cleared out our desks. We're just waiting for these guys to come in. These guys are all unionized. They came in, and as soon as they got to my desk, they said, 
they looked at my desk and they said, well, we're going to have to, we're going to go. We're going to come back tomorrow. I said, what, what's wrong? And he said, well, I see there's a phone on that desk. The phone guy has to come and take care of the phone. Then I'll come back and I'll take care of the desk. And they left. And they came back the next day and he said, phone guy come in yet? I said, no, he didn't. He said, I'll fill out a report. And they left, right? And we went on for days. You see, if you work in the office, you're plagued by overwork. But in, the, uh, in a lot of the blue-collar sectors, right, uh, in, a, in a factory, in the plant, there's a lot of literature about this. People are trying to work less, right? In fact, uh, there's stories and accounts of people when they try to do a good job and overwork in the factory, everybody else gangs up and says, yo, you've got to slow down. Let's just keep pace with one another, you see, right? And that's how they build community, unions. Let's get out of this work. What Paul's saying here is, he speaks to both communities. He says, I want you to work, even if your boss doesn't see, I want you to work for Christ. He is your real master. God is never going to overwork you. That's what the purpose of the Sabbath is. God is never going to overwork you. And he's a good boss. He's not a harsh boss. See, on one hand, this is the end of overworking. Verse 8, you know that the Lord will reward everyone with whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. What does that mean? If you work hard, if you're overlooked a lot of times, even though you're overworking, you're overlooked, or if you fail, right, or if you don't get into that program that you've been working so hard to get into, Paul's saying, don't be devastated. God sees. The very nature of doing the work Doing the studying. God's not looking at that F. God's not looking at the C. I know you wanted something higher. God's not looking at the grade and saying, I'm disappointed in you. You could have done a lot better. God's, there is intrinsic value in the work that you are doing to get there. You see, that's what he's saying. King David, the greatest king of Israel, King David. If you read First and Second Samuel, it's really a biography account of King David. And it's probably the single longest and largest biographical account that is true in all of ancient history, not just in the Bible, in all of ancient history. King David started out as a shepherd. He was the eighth son of eight sons. When Samuel wanted to anoint the next king, his father brought seven sons to the table. The eighth son didn't even show up, wasn't even called in, you see. He was a shepherd out in the field doing menial work, overlooked over and over and over. But oh, you got to think about this. But that work, that work taught him how to protect. That work taught him how to kill animals that were much bigger than him. So when Goliath showed up, if you know the story of David and Goliath, David shows up and says, the Lord who rescued, who delivered me from the bear and the lion will surely defeat Goliath. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he says. You see. He learned through that menial labor how to kill animals that were much bigger than him. God gave him all the tools that he needed to not only kill Goliath, but become king. You see, God sees the gospel is the cure for overwork. 
And that then becomes a cure for our anxieties, our depression. You work hard for Jesus, and Jesus never overworks you. And so you can rest in the finished work of Jesus. On the other hand, the gospel is also the cure for people trying to take shortcuts all the time. We have a generation of people, scholars, commentators will say, today in our society, it's a generation of people trying to take shortcuts to get to the top. And so they don't have the necessary skills that they need to build up by starting at the bottom and working their way. They don't have the, way, the opportunity to build their craft. Instead, they're taking zigzag approaches to life, trying to move up and just make the grade and make the pay. And as a result, they don't have all the skills nor the emotional intelligence to actually lead. And yet they're in positions of leadership, right? Here Paul says, the Lord, God is your real master, and he loves you, and he's good. So work hard with your whole heart. Work hard. In both cases, Paul's saying, don't look to your present career as an end in itself. Because if you do, it's going to make you anxious at times. If you do, it's going to depress you at times. If you do, it's going to devastate you, especially if you lose it at times. He says, work hard. Don't look at your present career as an end in itself. Don't look at your present boss, right, your master, right? Don't look at your present boss as your ultimate boss. So if you're a doctor, what Paul's saying is there is a healing that you are called to bring that goes beyond the calling that you were educated in. If you're a teacher, Paul's saying there is a teaching that you were called to bring that goes beyond your earthly teaching, you see. That's your real career. That's why God really placed you there. He could have placed anyone there. That's why he placed you there. You ever ask yourself why you are there? If you're in finance, he's saying there is a wealth that you can measure, that you can bring, that goes beyond anything that you're building for anybody else. So don't mistake building their earthly wealth without recognizing their need for a, a, a wealth that goes beyond that, that you're called to bring. Now, if you mistake that, if you mistake your earthly call over your greater call, it's going to bring disaster to both callings. That's why we get anxious. That's why we get depressed, especially when you fail, especially when you're passed over. The gospel enables you to walk away from making your job the center of your life. And so you're going to work a reasonable day. Every profession has reasonable, unreasonable, right? Higher or lower, overworking or underworking, you see. For a long time before I got into vocational ministry in the church, I, I ran a youth camp. And uh, youth camp is tough because when you're a working professional, you have to take two and a half weeks off straight. And so for a while, I was only taking one week because I could only afford to take one week. And I was doing that for a while, and I was in school, and my professor in seminary says to me, you know, I'll never forget it, Dr. Bill Christman, he says to me, um, he says, uh, Donnie, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I, I'm a consultant, I'm marketing, and all this kind of stuff. And he says, okay, well, uh, I, no, but tell, tell the people what you believe your calling is. And I said, well, I run a camp. I have a heart for children and youth. And he says, okay, well, how long is that camp? It's two weeks, you know. Uh, and uh, do you take two weeks? You know, I imagine you have to take a couple days break. Do you take two, over two weeks? I said, no, I haven't done that in probably three or four years. He says, why not? I said, well, because I have a job, and you see, like, 
you know, my boss looks at it a certain way, and I probably shouldn't do that. You can justify it a lot of ways. I mean, I've got to be a good witness, you know, you know I've, got to, I've got to do the Christian thing and not look like I'm slouching around. And he said, he's kind of shaking his head, and he said, Donnie, Donnie, who gave you your job? Now, you hear that from somebody way older and way wiser than you. It makes you stop. He says, who gave you your job? And you kind of look back and you say, God, God gave me the job, right? And he says, here's what I want you to do. Tomorrow morning, I want you to get in the office. I'm gonna write, you're going to write an email to your director, and you're going to tell him you're taking two and a half weeks off. You're not going to ask him. You're going to tell him you're taking two and a half weeks off. But I need to work. What happens if he says no? He says, then God is calling you to find a new job. What are you going for? What are you afraid of? That God's not going to provide for you? That God is not good to you? That's bold. It's kind of bold, right? And so uh, I wrote that email, sent it out, and I got my response was, the response I got was what? Go look for a new job. No, he, he didn't say that. He said, he said uh, my boss said, I'm going to forward this to the entire team because what you're doing is so honorable. Take the time you need. And we should be supporting people like you. Doesn't always happen that way, I know. Doesn't always happen that way, right? Kind of hear the music and there's the tears. Oh, you know, it doesn't happen that way all the time, right? I know. Um, but uh, the point is, uh, there's always fear. Read Esther. Read Joseph. Joseph in Gen- Genesis. Read about Daniel. He got thrown in the lion's den. Read about Esther. If I perish, I perish. It's all in the context of their work, you see. If you mistake the earthly call for the greater call, there'll be disaster in both. God will never overwork you. He will never overwork you. Your hard work. Think about it. You, a person, who would your boss rather have in the office? Somebody who's always trying to get around things or somebody who's going to work hard and because they have a finite set of hours, they're going to be incredibly disciplined and at the same time, they will be kind to the people they work with. They're going to work hard with a certain humility that makes productivity and trustworthiness. What boss wouldn't value that? Somebody who is humble and yet confident. What boss wouldn't value that? Otherwise, you know what's going to happen? It's going to lead you to cycles of cramming. Cycles of cramming and then exhaustion and then procrastinating because you're exhausted. And then you're going to cram, and then you're going to be exhausted, and you're going to procrastinate. But I need a break. I need a vacation. There are certain things. This type of life, a vacation cannot cure it. This type of life, there's no such vacation that can cure that kind of exhaustion. Only a deep rest of the soul that you need that only Christ can bring, you see. You will be more rested. You will function greater. You have greater clarity in your life. You enjoy a balanced life. Friends, I am an overworker. I am an overworker. I, am an, I, am, I have been an overworker. It is a daily battle. If I'm not constantly battling. And you can talk to my wife. Let her keep me honest right, about how I structure my week. There are days and a season in a week that I have to work harder, and there are seasons in the week that I'm chomping at the bit, but I have to force myself to rest. It's a work to do that. You have to, you have to, it's an incredible discipline one that I'm still trying to learn. Enjoy a balanced life. It doesn't matter what kind of work you do, right? Now, some of you, there are seasons of work, and we can get into that, you know, your residency, tax season, audit season, quarter end. I get it, that there's different seasons of work, 
But listen, if that season goes on and on and on and doesn't end, it's not a season. It's not a season. That's just an excuse. It's an addiction. Okay? Calling. Thirdly, we talk about the curse. I'm going to go a little quicker here. All right? God created us to bear his image. And so work, it actually existed even before sin existed. God created the first six days, and then he rested on the seventh day. It was a structure, a framework by which he wanted us to model and live, right? Because that's how we have been designed. And so we become better image bearers of God through our work. God is a creator. God is an architect. God is a ruler. And he said, I want you, I've created you, Adam, to subdue the earth. And so Adam begins, God brings animals to him, and he starts to name these animals because to name them is to claim ownership of these animals. You name your child because you have ownership of that child. It takes work. He named these animals to claim ownership of these animals. He was working. He was subduing the earth, what God was designing him to do. The problem is, instead of doing what God has designed us to do, we use work, we abuse our work, not to reflect the image of God, but to reflect or augment our own image. That's what we do. That's sin. We use our work, we abuse it to build our wealth, to build our status. And through that we say, this is how I'm going to get peace in my life. This is how I'm going to achieve rest in my life. It's going to work and work until retirement. You don't think about how sick you can get. You don't think about what it can do to your families or your children or your friends and your relationships and your church, everything in your society around you. You don't know what that's doing. You're contributing to that plague. We're trying to use our work to reflect our own images. That's why there's anger. That's why there's jealousy. That's why there's anxiety. They're all symptoms of overwork. And it's because of the curse. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam chose deliberately to distrust God. He chose to rebel against God. And so God cursed Adam. You know how God cursed Adam? He said this in Genesis. You're going to labor. You're going to toil. You're going to sweat. By the sweat of your brow, you will work. You will labor. And yet the ground is not going to produce any fruit for you. In other words, what he's saying is you're going to suffer, you're going to labor, you're going to sweat, you're going to bleed, and yet you're still going to fail, and then you're going to die. That's the curse of work, the disappointments and the frustrations of work. That this work always existed, and there will be work in heaven. I'm going to explain this to you. In Revelation 21, there will be work because God brings us into a city. There will be work, but that work will be meaningful. Everyone's work. And even though there will be work, there will be no frustration, no pain of failure, you see. There will be no anxiety. There will be no despair. Here, there is anxiety. There is despair because we've made an idol of our work. We are using our work to get what we think we need and what we can only get through the blood of Christ. Only Jesus can give you the status that you're actually looking for. Only Jesus can get you the approval that you're actually working for. Only Jesus can give you the acceptance, the sense of promotion that you so desperately are longing for. And so we work to build wealth, to build status, to build power, to build relational. Some, a lot of single people, they use it to build relational attractiveness. What do you do, you say, they say, when you first meet? That's the first thing you do, right? You want to be proud of that. But Paul says, if you see your work as a calling, you are working for the Lord. One, you're going to handle your work differently if God is giving you that job. 
right? You're going to be excellent in it. You're going to be excellent in it because you are an image bearer of God. Man, you're going to open up that spreadsheet and you're going to create the heck out of that spreadsheet. That's what you're going to do, right? Man, you're going to open up that Word document and you are going to write the heck out of that document, right? Because that's what you're called to do. You're going to be excellent in it. It's going to become a craft for you. Number two, you can rest in the Lord because you're not using your job to give you status. So there's peace. There's no anxiety. You're not using your job to get you power. So there's peace. When you're fighting, because you're fighting for power, there is war, you see? You've been given that status and so much more in Christ. So you can stop work. You can actually put the work down. Your work won't rule you or own you because you own your work. Number three, you're going to treat people differently at work. That's what this passage is about. You're going to treat people differently at work. No matter who you are, you were made in the image of God, and they were made in the image of God, no matter who they are. Whether or not they're believers, they were made in the image of God because God himself emptied himself of his own glory, and he came down. We serve a God who didn't stay up. He came down. He became a baby. You can't get lower than that. He came down and he was totally obedient and he became the ultimate failure to restore our dignity. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ did the work and he came down and then he went on a cross and went down and he died. He was buried. We are saved by grace. That finished work of Christ, it was the perfect work. He was excellent in his work. He was totally obedient. And then we are saved then by grace in Christ, not by our work. Then you don't use your work to find acceptance. You don't need to do it. You don't need your work to prove yourself. Jesus already proved it. You can't get more validation than the king of the universe saying, I love you to the degree that I would die for you. And you're looking for a raise? And you're devastated because of a raise? You see that? You never look down on other people as a result. You never look down on others as a result. Because with God, there is no favorites, it says. You can easily tell when somebody's relying on their work when you see how they treat other people at their job. That's how you can tell. It's very easy to tell, right? Remember that Jesus didn't fight to go up a ladder. He actually came down. He embraced the poor. He called the poor by his side. He called children by his side. He blessed women and called them daughters, you see. He embraced the weak. Who do you embrace at work? How do you treat people who are not as productive as you at work? I've been at my job in my career for over 20 years. You get to my age, you get to you know, a place where you kind of know something at work. It's an easy temptation to ignore the people you don't like or to ignore the people that you just don't care for because they're not going to get you anywhere. No, it's, it's easy to do that. That temptation is real. How do you treat those people? Can the gospel enter in and shape your life in a way that will change and make you an empowerer of lesser people? At my work, 
there are vice presidents who step on senior directors, who step on directors, who step on senior managers, who step on managers, who step on leads, who step on analysts, associate, there's the associate analyst, there's the, it, it, it goes, it's, that, that hierarchy is very real and there's subtle ways of showing where each person stands on that ladder and it plays into the very social dynamic and the fabric of our work. One group is always clawing against the other person and vice versa and no one ever pays attention to the person who's watering the plants, to the person who's vacuuming your carpet. No one ever pays attention. I'm going to tell you a story, and I know that we're going to kind of go over a little bit, right? So give me a little bit of a break here, right, as I go into this, because we could have turned this into a series, and I apologize. Uh, we, but uh, we're going to, I'm going to just tell you a couple stories. I'm going to wrap this whole thing up, okay? There is an executive at my work that I, that I heard of. Very gracious man. I, don't, I never met him because he retired right before I got there. And one of the stories that they tell about him in the workplace you know, that's how you know. When you hear the legacy of certain people and it's about their character, you know. This person, this executive, he was a senior vice president of one of the, you know, a Fortune 5 company, right? Top company in the world, right? And, uh, you know, every meeting he would have, they would always bring lunch. There's a, the salad person who comes in and brings the salad and the sandwiches and stuff like that for these meetings that he would hold. And apparently one day he told one of the salad people, he said, hey, can you, can you come back in about an hour, I would like to talk to you. Now, this salad person's nervous. This is a senior vice president of a large company, right? And so about an hour, he kind of sauntered in, and he said, okay, hey, how many children do you have? She said, I have two. He said, I'm going to give you a little tip, all right? I'm going to increase your salary. What I want you to do is I want you to take that increase and put it into this stock, and I want you to keep it there. I know there are going to be times when it's financially hard. You better keep it there. Right? I'm not going to ask you to show me, but you better keep it there. I know it's going to be hard. I know it's going to be tempting for you to sometimes withdraw that money and use it on your kids. Do not do it. Just trust me and put it in there. Every two weeks, are you doing it? She'd say, yes. Every two weeks, are you doing it? Yes. Do you have any questions? She would have questions, and they would talk, and they would get together. And people were walking by, and they're like, he's talking to the salad lady, right? 20 years later, she retired. A millionaire. How do you treat people at work? How do you treat people at school? How do we become like that? Verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Greek word for reverence is fear. It's not like, ooh, I'm scared fear, right? It's actually, the Bible says, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, Rod Strimple, he used to be a professor at Westminster here uh, in Philadelphia, but he's also a professor out in Westminster, California. He says this, fear, the fear that we're talking about is a convergence of awe and reverence and adoration and honor and worship and confidence and thankfulness and love. You want to go non-Protestant, we have uh, Roman Catholic Pope Francis. He says, the fear of the Lord is a joyful awareness of God's grandeur and a grateful realization that only in Him do our hearts find true peace. Fearing God means worship. Fearing God means thankfulness. Fearing God means I'm awed by that. In other words, I'm moved. That's what it means. It's shaping me. You don't feel in awe of something and it not shape you. Right? Malcolm X said when he saw, when he met the Honorable Elijah Muhammad for the first time, it wasn't, I feared him, he said. And it's not the fear of a person watching a horror film, but it's the fear of looking at the sun and being in awe. It shapes you. It changes you. 
you're going to be moved. Paul says, when you are that moved by Christ, reverence for Christ, you will submit to one another. It will change the way you view the world, wives and their husbands, children and their parents, slaves and their master. You will wonder at the love of God. You will wonder at the power and yet mercy of God, and it will move you. You will have that kind of fear. It will make you a new person at work. You will not be driven by work on one hand. You will not avoid working on the other hand. You will not use and abuse work to elevate your status because you have the status. On the cross, what did you see? The high king came down, not for status. He was born in a manger, but to give you status. He gave up his status. Not for wealth. Jesus said the Son of Man has no place to to rest his head. He was homeless. He didn't come for a sense of worth. You know what happened? He came to lose his sense of worth. On the cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father was his center. The Father was his sense of worth. The Father was his calling. And he said, I'm forsaken by the Father. I've been separated by the Father. I've truly been passed over. I've truly been overworked here in my work. And yet he was groaning and laboring and sweating and bleeding on the cross, and he died for you because of his love. That is a good master. That is a master that will never overwork you. He did the work. That is a master who says, I love you so much, I'm bleeding for you. Not so that you can work. Every other master will say, work for me. Jesus, as your master says, rest in me. Every other master will say, you got to die. you got to work. you got to slave. Jesus says, become my slave. You will be free. Free from all of this. Every other master says, you can't leave until you finish it. Jesus Christ on the cross says what? It is finished. He did the perfect work. The ultimate master became the ultimate slave. So that we who have been slaves to sin, working to get status, have been set free by the love of Christ because we, and we've received with that all the things that he deserved and he took the penalty for our sins. When the gospel, your boss will never do that. Your career will never do that for you. But when you see Jesus doing that for you, you can serve wholeheartedly. When you see Jesus doing that for you, you can sacrifice for other people. You can be gentler. You can be kinder. Because the gospel, our king, is gentle and kind. I would love to tell another story, but we're going to close. Let the gospel shape and transform your work. Okay? Let's pray.